Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 10 of Because WCW. Thank you ever so much for downloading us wherever you're getting us from, whether that be the IWN Network, iTunes, or Podbean. I am the Twisted Genius, Dean A.S., joined as ever by worldwide sports journalist pugilist writer extraordinaire mr liam hap how you doing liam yeah i'm in a good mood so far dean it's fight week over here in the in the other order they call it the legitimate fight sports it's the big fight week it's the world heavyweight unification title match in cardiff be heading up to that the weekend to watch joshua versus parker uh, and we've just had a bit of a heavyweight banger as well with Dillian White taking out Lucas Brown. And then, of course, uh, you were at the UFC in London a little while ago. Yeah, that was a good show. I mean, they very rarely do shows on this side of the water when it comes to UFC get big star power, but they do tend to punch above their weight on the, on the quality ranks, and this was no exception. Oh, dear, yeah. So we, I, uh, I commentated uh, recently on... Um, fantastic IPW show at um, the Clapham Grand main event of Doug Williams and Christopher Daniels uh, two guys with 50 years experience between them put on an absolute masterclass it is gen- genuinely one of those matches it's worth going out of your way to, uh, to find it it's on uh, so the IWN network iwnlive.net four ninety nine a month uh, well worth it. It was one of those weird, nightmare kind of shows because if you remember, that was the weekend we had a, a second dump of snowfall on the country. And um, as we've, we've mentioned previously, when when it does snow in this country, everything shuts down. And um, we had to we had about three people who couldn't make it due to transportation issues. So we basically had to throw the whole card up in the air and virtually start again. So uh, it was good that we got through it. But um, I'll tell you something. We have got some good shows coming up. I just want to want to mention. Uh, do you follow New Japan that much, Liam? I'm a fan of New Japan. I, I would love to find time to watch all of the shows, but I try and make time for the bigger shows and the if, if, ones, a, yeah. Yeah, if a match gets a big rave review I'll try and check it out well um, yeah the uh, you, you will have seen that um, Zack Sabre Jr. made huge headlines worldwide by becoming uh, the first British guy to ever win the super, the uh, New Japan Cup and uh, he, he gets a shot at the world title very shortly but he is making his return to IPW on Wednesday the 11th of April at Unit 9 in Milton Keynes uh, then we've got a couple of other big shows. First ever all-women's show, GRL, uh, it's been called, uh, on the 20th, Friday the 27th of April um, at the Westgate Hall in Canterbury. The irony of that, that it's on the same day as the WWE's greatest Royal Rumble in Saudi Arabia where there are no women on the show, <laughs> we have got an all-women's show. Because don't forget, kids, the women's revolution might be strong, but a bucket load of cash from Saudi Arabia is stronger. And uh, and then rounding off our trio of big shows on the t- Sunday, the 29th of April, we are at the casino rooms in Rochester, Kent for Battle Royale 2018. 
um, out. We've got um, Matt Riddle. He's taken on Luke Dragon Phoenix. That show match has just been announced. Tennille Dashwood, formerly known as Emma, she's going to be on there, along with our world champion, Austin Aries. And we have a very unique battle royal. The stipulation is that if a champion gets eliminated, then the person who eliminated them gets a shot at them in the next show, which gives you all manner of... Um, crazy kind of matchups so um that's that's what's happening on my on the commentary front and then of course um we've got uh, the evening with uh, events with uh, our friends at kayfabe events um coming up very shortly actually do you know what they're doing one in new orleans i'm not i'm not there myself but they've got an evening with bill apter on the 5th of april in new orleans um mike parrow one of the only openly gay wrestlers he is doing a two-day q a a three-day q a big pardon on the 16th, 17th, and 18th of April in Brighton, L- Liverpool, and London, respectively. That is being compared by the irrepressible Jack Sexsmith. We've got an evening with Austin Aries on the 26th of, of uh, April at um, the Hackney Showroom in London. They've got, I'm not doing this one, but Ted DiBiase is doing three dates, 17th, 18th, and 19th of May, Glasgow, Newcastle, and Manchester, respectively. I'm then uh, looking after two evenings with Jimmy Havoc, which I'm really looking forward to. 25th of May in Brighton, 26th of May in Manchester. That's the bank holiday weekend. And then we got the big one, an evening with Brett the Hitman Hart. 5th of June in Brighton, 6th of June in Cardiff, 7th of June in Manchester, 8th of June in London. Um, the one in Manchester, get this, I love this, this little twist. The, the show in Manchester on the 7th of June is actually in Oldham, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall in Oldham. And from doing a bit of research, Bret Hart once wrestled a televised match in 1981 at the age of 24 in that very same venue. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, I, like, just, I just like the way that all comes together, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, he, he strikes me as a sort of guy who would remember little trips like that. I remember reading his, his terrific autobiography and he's got such vivid fondness of his European tours, especially when he heads out to a place for the first time. And who can forget a place like Oldham, eh, Dean? <laughs> uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned not attending the shows in New Orleans. Uh, that'll be WrestleMania weekend. And I'm not actually that gutted that you and I will not be in New Orleans because we'll be back at the Clapham Ground, won't we? And I'm really we looking will. forward to that party. Uh, it's been a little while since I've done one. We, we spoke to the owner of Hooked on Wrestling, Paul Benson, who was our special guest on the, on the last episode of Because WCW. And... Yeah, it's been a while since I've done one of these, but I'm really looking forward to getting back in the in the swing of things. And just it'll be interesting to see just how much it's grown in those three and a bit years since I went to the Royal Rumble 2015 at the uh, Belushi's in Shepherd's Bush. He's had a few oh, venue changes yeah. since then. And from all accounts, including your own, Dean, and the atmosphere has only got more and more incredible. I believe tickets are still on sale as well, aren't they? Believe you me, it's got a hell of a lot bigger. Yes, yeah, so there's 25 different parties happening around the UK and there's one in Calgary, Alberta, Canada as well. Um, but if you want to get tickets for that, then um, go to um, uh, Hooked on Wrestling or Hooked on Events. Um, it's at HO Wrestling uh, on Twitter. But yeah, just put Hooked on Wrestling into uh, into Google and you'll find them. And there's bound to be a party near you 
and yeah, it is, it is so much fun. And, and I tell you what, with all this stuff, it looks like Daniel Bryan returning is going to be one hell of an atmosphere there. Um, also, I just want to say um, hello to anyone who has recently started following us on our Facebook page. We've got a lot of new people following us from uh, from there. So if you are downloading the podcast, having found us on Facebook, thank you for finding us and uh, and welcome to the show. And this this time around, where we we often we like to sort of you know do things in a bit of a time frame of you know picking things that happened in the in the same month as as we're recording but then sometimes you know circumstances just throw one straight into your palms and uh, the wwe network has just put a whole batch of wcw thunder episodes on the network and so liam and i just got our heads together and virtually at the same time texted each other to say how about we look at a wcw thunder episode one of course it's worth saying as well that we just by sheer chance happen to be recording this on on what i guess would be called wcw day the 26th of march yeah it's a bit of a somber wcw day but it's the day that everyone remembers it's the day that uh the company ran its last show which was that spring breakout nitro the the series finale as it turned out the eerie sight of the man showing up obviously Vince was on the screen in segments uh, every well, every five minutes just like he puts himself on regular WWE TV and then that so admittedly surreal and fantastic moment when Shane McMahon came out to the ring right at the end it's a shame it didn't lead to anything interesting but yeah this I suppose this is my chance for a quick plug of, of the fan fiction I have been writing and I've actually managed to do a nice little final brush up final update of, of of what i've already written basically what what if fusion did by wcw and it carried on because i think we can all agree that i think the wrestling industry would have been better off for it if they'd have managed to have carry on but maybe Absolutely. maybe not sell their soul with creative control contracts to try and start a war if they concede defeat in the monday night wars and carried on as an alternative like tna but with maybe a little bit more common sense who knows what sort of wrestling industry we've had check that out the uh the link is on the on the because those the pod being website i will be you know when i do get spare time i do try and update it i'm up to full brawl 2002 which is sad enough as it is and i've improved the quality i've gone back through it and i've improved the quality added some detail etc etc but yeah it seems a nice little thing to bring up on this anniversary date that we happen to be recording on yes yeah, a nice little touch um speaking of thunder yeah, like for me, I don't think there was any other alternative but the very first Thunder to do because, as we know, it didn't take very long for Thunder to fall right down in terms of priority. Uh, and part of that reason being, a lot of people know the backstory, it's the show that WCW never wanted in the first place. And understandably so, if you have any shred of business acumen, and although World Championship Wrestling tried to convince the world for 10 years that they had zero, they did have half an ounce. And that half an ounce was telling them that it would be oversaturation. But Nitro was hot, WCW was hot, wrestling as a whole was white hot at this time, end of 97. Their last pay-per-view was Sting Hogan, check out our very first episode that was a fantastic way to start it was their greatest ever night it was the beginning of the end but at the time they're thinking they can do no wrong the suits are thinking they can do no wrong they want uh, not only a two-hour show uh, to our second show but they this is when they incre- after this funder they increased Nitro to three hours so it went from two hours a week to five hours a week which was far too much and Especially with a three-hour nitro, Thunder got deprioritized 
pretty soon after this first edition. Now this one's free ads because it's the, the debut, it's the maiden show. So this is why Dean and I think thought it would be a good one to do because we've got enough content and we've got enough name stars that they're trying to put out a big first show. We can pretend it's sort of like a pay-per-view. It's almost like a clash of the champions, if you will. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it ran for three hours on the on the network. Obviously, once they take the ad breaks out, it's just under two and a half hours. But um, it's it's an in- interesting show. I mean, we'll we'll get through it. There's certain points where it already scream it just scream that it's not going to be a show that you 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 have to see unlike nitro which was the must see show that wcw did it's also interesting to note that thunder predated smackdown um yeah thunder started at this first episode january the 8th 1998 smackdown was april 99 so it was, it was you know a year and well, 15 months before the wwf as it was then caught up and they put in a secondary uh, a secondary show in, in the form of SmackDown, which was no doubt in retaliation for Thunder, because they were both on Thursdays, I believe, weren't they? Yeah, uh, and to WWE's credit, at the at the time, they were in a much stronger position. You know, this was still very much advantage WCW at this point. We didn't have Austin Tyson yet, but yep. that was that was coming, obviously. But it was still quite competitive. And it was a risky move, and those who knew it was a risky move to to stretch out so far. Uh, when SmackDown, because I think they did a one-off in in April '99, they did sort of like this. They did like a star-studded show. It was only one. I think it was another six months before they were on every week. Right. So they gave that little one-off bit, and by the time we got to autumn '1999, of course, WCW was in a tailspin, and. WWE would never look behind them again. So they were in that position. They also managed to keep Raw to two hours. That was two and two. Uh, yeah, there was a few things going their way. Even then, they, you know, they've, they've encountered their fair share of problems with balancing things out across Raw and SmackDown over the years. And that's despite having so many advantages over what the WCW situation was at the time and as a result they, they it was just unsustainable and any anyone who who watched at least a dozen episodes of Thunder at any point throughout the span will know the end result was a very sloppy a very you know Matthew from Botchamania got so much content out of Thunder alone it was very botch friendly uh, <laughs> you know bereft of star power B show and it just wasn't worth watching for the most part. Yes, but um, they 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 sort of put a bit more effort into this first this first show. So I mean, we 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 always like to start off with how Tony Schiavone introduces things. And what what was interesting here that you know he was talking about wrestling on TBS and then you know the, the the tradition of wrestling on TBS in America called it sports entertainment, which I think was a first. I mean, normally the WWE was sports entertainment and WCW was pro wrestling. So. Uh, He's joined by Bobby Heenan and Lee Marshall. They talk about all various legal matters revolving around Sting's controversial win over Hogan at Starcade. The only controversy being that, that Nick Patrick didn't do what he was meant to do. And uh, I've never understood. I don't, I don't know if this is just more of an American cultural thing because they have such a litigious society. But there seem to be so many uh, storylines in American wrestling that all revolve around lawyers and lawsuits and stuff that no one seems to give a monkey. The wrestling fans, at least, don't seem to give a monkey's about. 
Yeah, it's one of those famous wrestling go-tos when you realise you are really waffling and starting to make zero sense with your overcomplicated escape attempts to, from booking yourself into a corner. Uh, my favourite one is the Board of Directors. You know where there's too many authority figures and too many screwy finishes, or a combination of the two, when they have to go to a Board of Directors to, uh, to try and untangle things. And it's not a good sign coming off your big. You know, we won't we won't put too fine the point of it because we we did spend an hour and a half covering it in episode one. But Starcade '97 was their big show, and it should have been their big climax at the end of a chapter. Move on to the next chapter, and to be talking about all of that, it was not a good sign. In hindsight, we definitely know it was the case. But that's where we are, and a lot a lot of this show is built around what will happen after Starcade 97 and that and that weird finish to the main event. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we, we throw back to Nitro straight away. We see how um, Hulk Hogan arrived, in a, or Hollywood Hogan arrived in a, a separate limo. There were two limos parked up. Um, Hall, Bischoff and Savage are in one limo. Hogan and a few others are in another one. Uh, Bischoff denied that there's any problems within the NWO. We then uh, have a recap where uh, this is, you know, another another example of the uh, the legal side and the litigation side of things because WCW's uh, legal rep, Nick Lambros, um, declares that. Um, both WCW and NWO styles could be fined or suspended if they break WCW rules, which which really does come across as, as thrilling as it sounds. Um, and then J.J. Dillon suspends uh, Nick Patrick following the controversy at Starcade. We then move on to yet another recap of Nitro, where we see Lex Luger pinning Randy Savage. Um, I don't know why we can't actually just start with a wrestling match. You know, it, it, tra- tradition dictates maybe, you know, you, you, wrestling fans want to see wrestling matches on the wrestling show um and we see savage laying out bischoff hogan running down hogan shoving savage nash laying out savage um so there is definitely disarray within the ranks of the nwo and finally liam after eight minutes of nitro recaps eight minutes it's time for our first ever match on wcw thunder yeah, uh, and I also the weird thing about this is they touch upon how Randy Savage is due to be part of this opening match, which is against Chris Adams, and he's running late. But it was tying into all the disarray with the NWO, and you know, obviously, Savage is an insane loose cannon and stuff like. That. So try and play up that, and all it's done is it's made a di- you know he's still in the opening match. Normally, when there's oh yeah he's running late, it causes the match to be called off or changed, and there's a storyline reason. But no, it just means that there's this, as you touched upon, there's this big gap in the fucking show. Um, it's something we have discussed, and those though we did it a lot, but I've got to go to it. Is is yeah, we get these recaps of Nitro and that, but no, yeah, there's there's just this long introduction. At, at the commentary booth with our three-man team, it's all, all right for them to tie into things. But imagine you're there in the live crowd, and we say this every time, it's, it's come up in other episodes. If you're in that live crowd, the pyro goes off, bang on the hour. You're fu- you, you know, that's the sign that show's about to begin. You know, People yep. get to their seats 15 minutes or whatever, get their stuff, and they're waiting for the show to get going proper. And the pyro goes off, and they're ready. And then they just sat on their hands for 10 minutes. They can see the commentators moving their arms and gesticulating for the TV audience. 
maybe if they're lucky they'll get the the highlights that we're getting on the tv screen on their big screen the arena but still that's very little compensation you have to give them something right from the off it's not just about what we want as a viewer you know it does it doesn't affect us either way we can have the long intro if they want to explain things and for the record i i want to say i saw where they're going for with this lawyer saying oh yeah fine suspensions if you think about it we've just what should have been at the end of the Starcade main event Sting running through Hogan one two three there we go NWO's been done and they're going to do a little inner term or that's, that's well and good but we've just had 18 months of the NWO running rampant to the point where them ruining every main event finish was getting a little tedious having a lawyer come out and say they're going to enforce actual finishes to matches and actual contests is a good way of doing that but we know in hindsight that's not what we got so in theory on paper this should that should have been a good thing but it led to nothing case in point um all this dissension stuff and, and the, the clip with the limousines bischoff and savage were in the same limo and they yeah. just showed a clip where savage snapped and attacked bischoff so they're trying to play this dissension thing and they don't know who's on what side and then a couple of months later, spoiler alert, <laughs> retroactive spoiler alert, um, <laughs> the the beef is between Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan. But at this point, they hadn't decided that that was the crack in the NWO. So it, it morphs and changes over the next few months. It's it's a confusing mess, and it's seemingly done just to appease the stars who actually have veto power, as we know. Creative and as, control, brother. Yeah, and, and as a result, people get... If, 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 if a TV show confuses the fuck out of someone, they're going to tune out. And that's what people did throughout, slowly throughout WCW's 1998. But as the death of WCW book documents, the damage came just after that hot period, as it normally does. It's never an instant thing, but it happens over time. And all the confusion in 1998 led to the decline that came and what became a free fall and that's why this has been recorded on such a horrific anniversary then i don't know if i've mentioned this story before or not but it's worth just mentioning there was um someone i knew i won't, I won't name them but someone i knew who worked for wcw at, at that sort of time when all these guys were coming in with their creative control and he was backstage at a, an episode of nitro savage walks into the building and they said that at a certain part of the backstage area they had like a big whiteboard disco inferno yes. yeah all of the matches all of the matches were written up and it had savage v disco inferno and savage just took one look at the board went no and just rubbed his name off the board because he wasn't facing Disco or rubbed Disco's name off the board because either way he didn't want that match to happen and they just walked off yeah which is ironic because we're here finally at match number one it's Randy Savage versus Chris Adams which is not exactly a step up for Savage and uh, well we'll, we'll it won't take us long to get to result because it's not a very long match, but the result is no. the result. Although I, I, um, I would imagine the difference between Chris Adams and Disco Inferno is that Chris Adams could probably beat the live, ever-living fuck out of you. As, uh, I don't know about Disco Inferno. but um... Either that or you're just holding a gun to Savage's head backstage because we know he's not above that. 
Indeed. So, um, yes, it's gentlemen, <clears throat> Chris Adams against Randy Savage. Adams has, Adams has this awful music. Now, I'm, I'm presuming this was the music he had and not some WWE Network reboot, but it basically sounds like the opening score from an, an 80s sci-fi muse, movie. Um, then the NWA music hits, out comes Savage with Elizabeth. And I'll tell you what I like as well about Nitro here, uh, Nitro, I like what I like about <laughs> What I like about Thunder here is that they've got these pretty cool looking green laser beams firing out through the entrance curtain, which much like you see at big big uh, British boxing matches. It, it just looks pretty cool, especially for 1998. That and the on-screen graphics I thought were pretty cool, uh, which didn't make up for the fact that the rest of the set and the ring and the apron were absolutely horrific. To me, it looked like they'd finally, after three years, they'd finally found another use for the set they used when Hulk Hogan visited the Dungeon of Doom. <laughs> yeah, it was some sort of like grey brick pattern on the apron, wasn't it? It was terrible, wasn't it? And I showed yeah, you a yeah. thing on social media, didn't I, Dina, where they, there was a first-hand account from the crew where, oh, why, why, why did you get rid of that set so soon? And someone who worked for the production was like, because it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, who whoever thought that grey wouldn't be an exciting colour, you know? Mm. So um, yeah, this is this match. Savage gets off to a fast, intense start. He's he's obviously not happy. He's obviously on a mission, all, all based around the, the clips we've seen earlier. Um, very one-sided match. Savage keeps going for covers and then pulls Adams up to break the count. Um, he throws Adams to the floor, drops him onto the steps, drops him onto the guardrail. Um, Adams then reverses um, a run into the post and runs Savage shoulder first into the ring post. Savage spends an eternity overselling it. I mean, and well, watching it, I, I thought for a moment he'd like legit injured his wrist or something because he's just holding his wrist and hanging around by the aisle for ages. But he's basically waiting for Lex Luger to appear. Luger obviously a bit late. Luger runs down, clocks Savage with a chair, throws him back into the ring. And in the background, you see a battered Chris Adams getting back into the ring, crawling over to cover the prone Savage for the match-winning pinfall. Adams crawls out of the ring and we go to a break as we see J.J. Dillon come to ringside. So a very brief match, which has been won through no large degree of assistance from Lex Luger. Your winner is Chris Adams. It's obvious they wanted uh, an eye-opening first result on the ledger. Chris Adams defeated Randy Savage. And they got it on paper, but obviously to, to get that... To, and I'm not, Of course, it's to to continue the feud with Lex Luger as well, because these two would fight sold out. So it's got that as well, but clearly it's all defeated by just how many asterisks uh, Savage and the Bookers, you don't know who exactly said, but you can imagine, especially after that Disco Inferno story that Savage made sure that there were so many caveats to his loss, all the picking up visible pinfalls, a chair to the head... I'm, surpri I'm surprised he didn't insist that Lex Luger was the one who physically put Chris Adams on him. Because I know there's some wrestlers who demand that when they uh, when they lose by pinfall. They want the interferer to actually make the pinfall happen. So the guy they're losing to can't even drape an arm over manually. We, we were just short of that in this. And it was, it was a one-sided massacre. It was a TV match. Yeah. And it was there for the result. And as we'll find out later in the show, even... even you know, there was, there was another cave, there was another caveat to yeah. him laying down for three seconds. Spoilers, yeah. Um, so 
After the break, Hogan and Bischoff come down to the ring together, looking united. Hogan declares he beats Sting. He's the true world heavyweight champion. Uh, Mike today interviews JJ Dillon. Dillon talks about Luger attacking Savage. And that WCW are upholding the rules. And so the Savage and Adams result is reversed. Mm-hmm. And Savage wins by disqualification. So Adams was the winner for, what, five minutes? Yeah. And they're trying to get over this, right, we're going to go back to the rules thing. But as we know, in hindsight, it didn't work. It should have been a thing where they had a bit more of a cleaner product. Not just because we're going to take this typical wrestling fan line, oh, there should be clean finishes, there should be more wrestling. Not necessarily, especially on the TV show. I I don't subscribe to that theory. But when you've just had a year and a half of the NWO running roughshod successfully, but it's getting to the point where it's risking oversaturation. It's a great time to suddenly shore up the rules, and they they couldn't stick to it. It was a it was a very short lived thing, and it just led to I, I do remember this the promo that Luger cuts in rebuttal was pretty cool, and it was a good promo because he's like, "Well, we've been trampled on for a year and a half, and now we're starting to fight back. You want to have the rules?" It was there was a, there there was good justification for some babyface fire there but it never went the way that it could have unfortunately that's really interesting you say that because i hated that promo i said it was i thought it was the most generic i'm sick and tired promo and his delivery was never good he never he was never yeah, great at promos. he's a he's a crap promo and sick and tired but yeah it's it's a cliche but even a, a, a stopped clock is right twice a day. And there are times where the cliches are absolutely perfect and spot on. And this is one of them. Ba- Babyfaces yeah. are fighting back, are suddenly finding that the, the lawmakers want to wanna make things more strict. And he's, well, we're not going to stand for this. So this was the time for that promo. And yeah, bet, better guy delivering it, fair enough. But I liked it for what it was, despite who was in front of it. But then Luger does declare that the WCW guys won't listen to management and will do what they want. So um, art imitates life a little, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Match number two is Louis Spicoli versus Rick Martel. Spicoli comes out in these long, dark trousers and a T-shirt which says The Real Innovator, which to me seems like some sort of a knock on Tommy Dreamer. Um, who's doing great guns in ECW at the time. Martel comes... Rick Martel just looks outdated. This is the late 90s, and he's sort of looking out, still looking from the 80s. He's he's got, you know, a jacket and music that makes him look like a Mediterranean holiday rep. But this this is his second week in WCW. He does... I mean, he looks in great shape. Spicoli looks anything but great shape. And, and yeah, Martel is just an 80s smiley baby face. It just seems out of date at this point in time. We see Raven's flock walk down the crowd to take their seats, and it's a very nondescript, basic match. Martel wins with a Boston Crab. Um, Spicoli didn't look at the races at all, and, I mean, it was telling that, very sadly, he would be dead a month later after overdosing on Somers. I think he was he was just not, not with it at all at this point in time. Yeah, this was a very sad match to watch, obviously, mostly because of Spicoli. But to a lesser extent with Martel as well. Spicoli, obviously, as you said, he was on his last legs. Anyone who's read up on some of the first-hand accounts from other wrestlers uh, about just how bad his drug problems were at this point, it's a miracle he managed to get in the zone and look conscious when he came down to the ring because by all accounts backstage he was just you know, on, on another planet most of the time because because of how hooked he was on painkillers and somas. And, yeah, and Spicoli was really struggling. Um... Martel, see, no, it weren't really 
emphasized so much by the commentary team at this point but if you watch the WCW pay-per-views a, a little later on like such a Super Brawl um, it's very clear what they're doing with Martel and they, they put more emphasis on it um, this is very much a, a, a Indian summer one last crack at the big time gimmick and yeah he's a he's a predominantly 80s wrestler who looks like an 80s wrestler in the late 90s where things were so edgy and aggressive with the new old order and the attitude era was just about to come etc etc and it was well you know he was putting on good matches with the perry satins and the booker t's because no long, yeah. yeah no it's long it's after it's... this he'd be very much in a tv title picture and that's exactly where martel's thing worked so was, i thought he was quite well used it was a lovely little couple of months for Martel, and unfortunately, he would blow his knee out. It may have been Super Bowl, it may have been one of the other shows, but not long after, it didn't last very long because he blew out one of his knees, and that ended his career. So, the Indian summer wasn't that long after all, but for the time being, I liked it. And, and this accomplished what it was meant to do. Rick Martel's back, it's his last shot, and you know, he's going to make the most of it. This was a formality who won it, but but yeah, this was you know, Spicoli putting him over. On to the next segment. Yep, so uh, we recap Starcade 97, the segment where Scott Hall told everyone Kevin Nash wouldn't be appearing to face the Giant. The entire segment was replayed. Um, again, we, we went over this in episode one, so um, do if you haven't had a chance to yet, do listen to episode one where we talk in depth about Starcade 97. Um, so in the first half hour, we've seen one match where the decision's been reversed, another five-minute match that's just filler, and the rest of the time has been recaps of other shows. Yeah, this this would be a good time to point out that the ratings for this funder were very strong. A cool, I'm taking this from the Wrestling Observer newsletter at the time. But it drew a 4.02 rating, 3.75 first hour, 4.25 second hour, 4.03 third hour. And it had a 5.99 share. I'm not sure the exact magnitude of that, but I do know the Cliff's Notes is it had a good share while going head to head with a Thursday night lineup on NBC that included Friends, Seinfeld, and ER, which That's was that. Pretty strong. So, Thunder did very well. Now, debut episodes tend to have that ability to do quite well. Uh, Exhibit A, I give you the XFL, (laughs) (laughs) which is one of the best examples of how people will be curious and will tune in for something the first time. But um, by all accounts as well, going by the breakdowns, the recaps did quite well, which goes to show there were a lot of people, you know, the, the, the rating for Starcade was great, but... TV numbers were still huge at this time. So there were, you know, a reasonable number of people who don't quite buy the pay-per-views but watch the TV. Yeah. So there was a lot of interest in, in watching more than just the usual, you know, they show still photos and throw over a couple of the best commentary sound bites and sometimes they even go spoiler free unless they absolutely have to spoil it. So this was a lot more this is extended highlights. So I'm I'm guessing it worked in the short run to, to be able to watch um We've got a couple of Starcade matches that are shown yeah. half in their entirety coming yeah. up later on. Because um yeah, I was gonna say we get we get the Hogan Sting match highlighted yeah. later and they make a really big a really big deal of it. But um... Bisco, uh Bischoff as well, I think it was almost his entirety they showed yes. that. And that did re- apparently that was the peak of the ratings. The yes. replay of Bischoff Sabisco. Obviously Bret Hart's first in ring appearance might have had a role in it. So match number three, and if we, we stick to the 
uh, on-screen captions, it's Tenzan the Ohara, or uh, Hiroyoshi Tenzan, New Japan stalwart, comes down wearing a, like a half-mask with the horns, and he is against Michiyoshi Ohara, um, who is wearing a, a traditional kimono and one of those, I don't know what they're called, and I do apologise if I call it a, a lampshade-looking hat, but you know what I mean by that. He's got Sonny Ono with him, so it's all looking horrendously stereotypical so far. <laughs> The interesting thing is that whenever the New Japan wrestlers are in WCW, they always seem to be given just this generic, stereotypical Japanese instrumental plinky-plonky music, whereas when they're wrestling in New Japan, they have anything but. And I never understood why they didn't just use their New Japan music, but but there you go. must have been a licensing issue, because it is right there otherwise. But except for that, it's an issue that isn't just exclusive to WCW. TNA had some really naff, stereotypical international music. WWE has done it themselves. Yeah. You know, you're in Express theme, so I actually find it quite catchy. But yeah, as stereotypical as it gets. Tenzan does have one of the greatest haircuts in the in the history of wrestling, it has to be said. I think all, all of the top five on the shortlist are Japanese wrestlers. <laughs> A couple of them were the of... females. Who's it who had the mohawk? Japanese female wrestler with a mohawk. Yeah, was it Ajakong? Ajakong, yeah, kind of had a bit of a mohawk, and Bull Nakano with the hair that went straight up in the air. Yeah, that might have been what I was thinking of. Sorry, sorry yeah. for my lack of knowledge on the Joshi scene. Yeah, and Te- Tenzan has kind of buzz cut on top, shaved at the sides, and mullet at the back. It's it's amazing, and multicolored, of of course. They just know how to do it in in Japanese wrestling. They they get hair. They do, yes, and you know. What what hair what weird haircut can't be covered up with a baseball cap when you're walking through the airport, eh? Exactly. So um, Mike Tanay does a great job. I, I feel sorry for Mike Tanay. He's done a, a great job here of, of explaining the situation in New Japan because obviously there's a working relationship between New Japan and WCW and the, the NWO has got a Japanese arm, which is kind of ironic because New Japan was where Eric Bischoff got the idea for, for the NWO from in the first place. Yeah. Tanay comments on Ahara and Tenzan's rule, roles in the New Japan NWO war in, in uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling and Shivani questions what New Japan are doing in this war, which just sounds really bad. It's like, shouldn't he know? Because there's meant to be a partnership. But I know Shivani said before, no one gave a shit about Japanese wrestlers in WCW, and he certainly didn't. And that, that comes across here. Because um, he's basically telling people not to care about the New Japan wrestlers. Like, that's why I feel sorry for, for Mike today, because he's trying to educate people. At the same time, you've got Tony Schiavone telling people not to bother. Um, the crowd don't seem to care much, which is a real shame, because it's a pretty good match for a, a brief TV match. Tenzan hits a cool-looking kind of to- tombstone Michinoku driver combo, followed by a top-rope diving headbutt, which gets a, a mild pop and gets the win. Two memorable things stood out to me about this match. And it's quite an indictment of what they were. But the first one was, should I feel ashamed that I actually let out a loud laugh at Bobby Heenan's joke during O'Hara's entrance where he mistook his name for the Chicago airport? Oh, O'Hare, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that actually made me laugh. I, I, they like him. Was, was it they like him so much they named the airport after him? Something like that. And that made me laugh. And I probably should be embarrassed about it. Secondly, yeah, today does a good job of recapping who they are and why we should care, even though there was no hope of us ever caring. But one of the reasons why I can understand why people don't care is this O'Hara guy, they said his, his, his whole thing was, 
he actually wanted to join the NWO Japan and they rejected him and beat the crap out of him and did the NWO spray paint on his back but rather than spraying NWO or whatever they did the uh, the kanji the Japanese uh, symbol for dog mm. you know pero dog just call him a dog your typical old timey insult I suppose but he took it as a you know he owned it and he started calling himself the freedom dog He's free, you know. I'm gonna fight against you, and they were fighting for freedom, dude. You wanted to join them, and they said no. It's <laughs> imagine, imagine if DDP, you know, DDP got massively over a year before this, where they wanted him in the NWO, and he turned them down. It was a huge pop. It it, it led to a thing, you know, and he had feuds with Savage, and he be become world champion. He was one of the guys who stood up to the NWO. Can you imagine if they did a thing where he was begging to join? I was like, nah. Who would take him seriously then? And that's the thing with I can't get with a guy like this. And I don't even know too much about him as a wrestler, but I know the the storyline going in. Even in New Japan, where that is a New Japan attendee or a fan's primary product, I wouldn't give a fuck about this guy because he's an absolute goof. He's like every mid carder in WWE with a with a stupidly written storyline that gives you no reason to want to get behind him or think he's cool or buy his merchandise. Yep. And and you, you, you always kind of think that you know Japan is where they have the storylines that make sense, but in this case it didn't. That's a horrible storyline. What kind yeah. of baby face is that? So uh, we then go back to another Nitro recap with uh, this one's quite good actually. Ric Flair and Bret Hart having a verbal confrontation. Um, Flair takes exception to the fact that Bret calls himself the best there is, best there was, best there ever will be because obviously Flair thinks he's that. Um, we'll get a kind of a, a, a rehash of that promo later on in the show. But then we get into a very interesting matchup. Match number four, Chris Jericho versus Ric Flair. Jericho cuts a promo. Uh, they finally turn his music off and his mic on as uh, WCW suffers its regular sound difficulties. I think every show we've ever reviewed, they have something going wrong with the sound. Um, and Jericho's cutting this mock sincere promo where he apologizes to the fans for his previous temper tantrums and unprofessional behavior. Um, and for some reason presents uh, ringing out to Dave Penzer with a jacket as, a, as an apology to him. And, and I guess this was the start of the, the heel turn for Jericho and the getting a bit more interesting as a character. This is indeed, this is a very pivotal match for Jericho, a very important moment. Uh, this is one in a series, basically repeat the joke over and over again, go on a bit of a losing streak. But this one in particular is on the debut funder against Ric Flair. And, you know, he's still predominantly a cruiserweight uh, he would occasionally wrestle some heavyweights and he would spend the next nine months as a cruiserweight again but this is a rare match against the top WCW star from at this time and this is the sort of thing that he would get a taste for and expect to be able to one day get in WCW obviously he didn't and that's why he left and the, and the rest as they say is history but yeah this is this is the start of one of the best characters we've seen in Big time professional wrestling, like national TV professional wrestling, and uh, the Dave Penzer thing will make sense at the end of the match. Yes, 
Um, so Flair comes out. Flair gets Pyro for his entrance. This uh, apparently this is the very first time these two have ever faced off in singles competition. Gee, I don't know how many other times they faced off in singles competition after this. To be fair, they wrestled but... a few, t- not too many times, but they definitely wrestled a few times in early 2000s WWE. I believe there was a pay per view match as well. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, maybe Un- Unforgiven 2002 or SummerSlam the... 2002. Maybe both. Yeah, a few times, but not many times. Basically, they had, a, I believe, they had a little feud. The feud ended, and then Flair's next move was to immediately turn heel and join Triple H. And well, that was that. That was oh, even evolution. Yep, yeah, that was evolution, etc., etc. I see. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm just looking here. Yes, SummerSlam 2002. Ric Flair defeated Chris Jericho by submission. And I think, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, Un- Unforgiven was one for one where Jericho got the win back, if I remember correctly. Might have even been for the Intercontinental title. Unforgiven was uh, September 2002, so this was a pay-per-view afterwards. Yep. And um, Chris Jericho defeated Ric Flair by submission. Jericho was the Intercontinental champion by this point. We also had, uh, yeah, we also had Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker. Eddie Guerrero and Edge, this was quite a good pay-per-view. Anyway. 2002 was a good in-ring year. It was just really stagnant after the botched invasion. They, yeah. they had run out of fresh ideas and they were going back to old combinations. But no, there was a lot of good wrestling. That get, gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. Yeah, so but this is a great match. Great TV match. Um, lots of you know ebbs and flows in, in one man's favour and then the other. So... Um, Jericho starts the match off on offense. Flair feigns injury. Jericho gets in too close. He gets a finger in the eye from the dirtiest player in the game. Um, there's a great spot where Flair does his usual flip in the corner and Jericho jumps off the adjacent corners to catch Flair with a springboard drop kick on the apron. Flair then distracts Charles Robinson, the ref, and low blows Jericho. This was so good that when you were watching it, you texted me to say how magnificent it was. Yeah, just great old school cheating, especially from the actual... Babyface in a situation, which in Ric Flair's case, you know, Ric Flair, Eddie Guerrero, certain babyfaces can cheat because that's their character. Is that even yes. even when the fans like them, they're still dirty sons of bitches. And there's a place for certain, you know, a limited place for wrestlers like Ric Flair will always be the dirtiest player in the game. And yeah, it's just of all the cliche ways of cheating. That's a great one. You should see someone bring that back. So what what does Flair do? How how does he distract Robinson? Um, he asks him to check the time expired in the match, which you know this is old school stuff. This is you know part, half the roster at this point in early '98 wouldn't even think that that was a that was a thing that was an aspect to their product. But back in the '70s and '80s, where Flair cut his teeth was. Um, or oh, for seventies and early eighties with Flair cut his teeth, who was obviously the man for the rest of the eighties. Uh it was very much a thing where time limits were very stringent and very much a part of the of of every match rather than just occasionally shouting out a time limit which telegraphed that they were going to a time limit draw. So the whole thing where that you could check to see where you were on the time but was a thing. And him bringing that back just made me laugh. It's great. Great stuff. So, yeah, the story of the match is basically that Flair is using these wily veteran tactics to get the better of the younger Jericho. But Jericho keeps coming back. Um, Flair sidesteps a top rope dropkick from Jericho, clamps on the figure four leg lock for the win. 
Uh, and Jericho flips out afterwards, tipping over the ring steps and ripping off the jacket that he'd previously given to Dave Penzer. Yeah. And then I believe on the following Nitro, he was presented with a new one. Apologise, rinse, repeat, blah, 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 blah. Did this a few times, I believe. Going by the commentary track on this Thunder, it sounds like this was the second time he had done it. The commentators were starting to smell a rat in in the repetitiveness of it. And he'd keep doing it to the point where they'd be like, right, this guy's being a real disingenuous piece of work. And I always remember that moment on Nitro where... The hill turn happened where he was throwing his tantrum, but obviously things run quite fast on the TV show and Rey Mysterio come out because his, his match was up next. He very politely and diplomatically tried to talk Jericho down and explain that his match was next. Jericho apologised, said he felt embarrassed and said he'd leave him to get on with it. Way till his back was turned and beat ever-loving crap out of him. And <laughs> that, w- that was your Cruiserweight title match that sold out. We we actually go straight on to another match. We're, we're picking up steam here on Thunder. Yeah. It's, it's Meng v. the Giant. As Meng makes his entrance, Shivani tells us that they have an announcement to make that will be the biggest announcement in the history of any wrestling promotion in history. There's the Shivani I know and love. There's there my go. boy. Yeah, uh, it's quite the claim. And, and he announces that uh, a match between Flair and Bret Hart will be the main event of the sold-out pay-per-view uh, in January. Uh, Lee Marshall calls it a dream match, even though obviously it's a match that's happened a fair few times in the WWF. But you know, credit to them, they build it up really, really well. But calling something, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just being predictive, but calling something a dream match when it's already happened to me is is a bit odd but it's just a great match with two guys with great a, a great history behind them in their defense it is a slightly different match obviously when they did wrestle last time Hart was just coming to the top of the profession got his first yeah. world title now these two are two established guys and not just that but Hart coming over was one of the main WF guys coming over off the most controversial moment in professional yes. wrestling history and yeah, this is this is a different animal. And they were they were right to jump on it. Sometimes you can tweak things a little and this is this is creative license for me. But yeah, it's a big I just can't believe they didn't do it late on the show given that they actually do have both of them in the ring at the same time later on. And they just do it over commentary instead. Weird. Mm, very odd. But um Shivani also announces another match which is the Giant v Kevin Nash in the match that should have happened at Starcade if Nash had turned up. Should have happened at Starcade, World War Three, Halloween Havoc. And by this point, although there was certain degrees of legitimacy to his medical get outs, I believe he had to have or he had knee surgery Halloween around Halloween Havoc, but people were questioning whether or not it was he had to have the knee surgery or if he was just timing you know surgery on some niggling issues because it was a great time to not be wrestling for him and by this point we 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 gave his uh, potential excuses a little bit of respect on episode one but I think by this point in the timeline it was pretty much uh, agreed that it wasn't quite the alarm of a potential heart attack that he was playing it up to be no, he's... it was very much a... And so, suddenly the match is on. Apparently it's definitely going to happen. Spoiler alert, it does happen. And lo and behold, um, the Giant was booked to win all three times the match didn't happen. It does happen at sold out. And the winner is, uh, yeah, Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash. After nearly killing the Giant and breaking his neck. Yeah. 
Which was unfortunate. Yes, he does. Uh, he's Nash appears later on looking remarkably healthy for a man who thought he had a heart attack a week and a half ago. But uh, there you go. So yeah, this match, as I said, is announced during the 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 Meng v. Giant match, so uh, the commentators are barely paying any attention to. Uh, the Giant misses a splash in the corner. Meng goes on the offense until Giant basically hulks up and chokeslams Meng for the pinfall. That's about it, really. Just yeah. to keep the giant strong. I don't know about you, Dean, but in our last episode, we covered Uncensored 96, and I felt like I was watching his match versus Loch Ness all over again. It was cut from the same template, really. Yes, very much so. And, you know, there's a lot of guys in wrestling history who are known to have a, a match template, like a Formula Flair match or a Formula Hogan match or even a Formula Bret Hart match. Bret Hart, yeah. But uh, as it turns out, I'm starting to see evidence by doing this podcast. I'm actually seeing evidence that there's a Formula Paul White Giant match. Mm. Fair play to yeah. him. The, the, the splash in the corner, yeah. yeah. Uh, match number six. Are you ready for this one? Steve McMichael v. Bill Goldberg. The rematch that nobody wanted. Yeah, or as um as I wrote as I was watching this, oh shit, Mongo's wrestling, God help us all. To be fair, this match, or oh, in my opinion, this is the match they probably. I'm not saying it was a good match, but it's the style of match they should have had at Starcade. And we went into details in episode one why that didn't work, the Starcade match, and this weren't much better quality wise. But this is this is kind of what they were surely going for. It's, this is what they should have been going for. Yeah. Um, what I love is right at the beginning Michael charges out through the ropes steps on the apron and then shoulder tackles Goldberg who's on the outside in a move that even Shivani describes as almost like a suicide dive yeah a suicide dive with training wheels on yeah maybe a a bungee jump yeah he has the, the, the step on the apron you see credit to Sabu when Sabu decided to step on a chair as a little step up to help himself do dives, people called it innovative and extreme because he was using a chair when actually he was giving himself a lift up. Uh, and when Michael does it on the ring apron, he gets told it's almost like a suicide dive. But um, he um, can't call it a fluid manoeuvre in any way, shape or form. But he pounds on Goldberg with forearms, drives him into the ring, steps on the floor. But Michael throws him back into the ring, shouts something to the crowd. And in that time, the time it takes him to turn his back, shout something to the crowd and turn back again, Goldberg's popped up absolutely fine. Um, he takes over on Michael, hitting a press slam modified into a power slam as he's about to drop him. Um, Goldberg locks in that, that rolling leg submission hold that he likes to do, which I always thought, I don't know about you, Liam, but I always thought it was totally pointless because to me, the point of a submission is to win the match. But can you imagine how disappointed the fans would be if he won with that submission as opposed to winning with the jackhammer? It's true, but also within the 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 kayfabe body of a match if you're if you've taken a few shots and and you're just getting back in control if a hold helps you keep control i suppose the problem with this particular hold is it is it looks like it could finish a match especially now in this day and age where we're seeing a lot of uh judo and ufc mma style submissions make it to the forefront and, and finish matches and this one is kind of sitting halfway between an actual finish and a wear down hold such as a, a chin lock 
Yeah. So he's, he's think, using it in the chin lock position, but it looks so much better in the chin lock. So it's kind yeah. of mixed signals, I, I guess. And and it it looks it sort of looks so out of place in the rest of his repertoire. I think as well. It's like I learnt the submission move, so I'm going to put it in every match, regardless. But um, his his offense was always awkward in that respect because he'd have a yeah. few moves. You know, he had a couple of judo throws. He'd he it was a weird one, but. At the same time, all these moves were distinct at a, at a time where we were really starting to get sick of, you know, everyone does a DDT, everyone does a spine buster. So I, I remember that much about his offense. It definitely stood out, and obviously yeah. there were he had the moves that made the money. And this was the this was actually the first match I was referring to. Had this was a much better booked match, you could say, a much better mechanic of a match, even though it wasn't a great match. This was the start of the Goldberg that would become so incredible in 1998. You know, he's still in a feud with McMichael. He's still technically the hill. He comes down to the ring and he, you know, he's like, "Get that camera out of my face! Get away Ooh. from me!" you stupid fan with the hand sticking out. He's doing all those typical little hill mannerisms. There's none that silent mystique that would... You know, that that's not far from here. That would soon be added. But the match-wise, the way he was a lot more indestructible, the way he shrugged off some of that offense, the way he left McMichael laying at the end of it, now we're starting to see the formula come together. Yeah, although it has to be said, it's not just Goldberg. No one is selling a goddamn thing in this match. Literally, not a thing. It's yeah. it's hilarious. It's the right. As, that's what I mean. There's a difference between putting on the right match and putting on a good match. They've yeah. put on the right match. They've put on the right result. The right end result. The right sort of uh, image of Goldberg. They're looking to put over. But no, the match sucked just like Starcade. Yeah. The the great thing is at, at the end. Michael can't even get his arm in the right place for the jackhammer, and after sort of flapping it about, Goldberg manoeuvres him into position and, and wins with the jackhammer. Aiden says Goldberg owned Mongo from beginning to end, which actually it was quite even, but I think there's more to do with Mongo not quite doing what he was meant to be doing. But um, yeah, They'd find better opponents for Goldberg, and within three months, they'd, they'd struck gold. <laughs> Pardon yes. the pun. Moving swiftly on to match number seven. This is a WCW World Tag Team title match as Conan and Buff Bagwell coming out to the NWO Jobber theme. Challenge your World Tag Team champions, the Steiner Brothers, who come out to their awful WCW Slam Jam theme. Um, Ted DiBiase with them, looking completely out of place as a babyface manager with the tag belts over his shoulders. I, I mean, I know from first-hand experience how difficult it is to be a babyface manager. It's really not an easy gig. And it feels like the Steiners, with the amount of success they've had already, don't really need need a manager. But this is sort of the the opposition to the NWO, I guess, isn't it? Um, I think the closest you came, personally, Dean, from what I remember as a fan, to finding that magic as a babyface manager, you kind of need a badass killer of a client. Uh, I remember Paul Burchill having that great run in the yes. early 2000s, and a great catchphrase, which is what we had with the disclaimer catchphrase. See, that worked, and that wasn't generic babyface stuff. That was just popular stuff that fans would then get behind afterwards. Uh, but yeah, Dibiossi's trying to, especially as we know how good a heel Dibiossi is, but I'm sure it'll come up at, at the events he's doing here in England, and I'm not sure if you know the backstory about why he's in this role, but uh, basically, you know, he was he was the Eric Bischoff of the NWO early on. It made a lot of sense because mm. they're trying to subtly portray the NWO as 
invaders from WWF without actually getting sued. And part of that was that Ted DiBiase, you know, no mention of Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase was financing the evasion, making it happen, getting them the, the airtime with those really well-produced black-and-white propaganda promos that he did early on. He was the money behind that, was the idea. And that worked. But then Eric Bischoff decided he went the piece of the pie and you know, to an extent, he was actually pretty good in the end in that role, and he ended up becoming a very good uh, Hill personality. But it kind of just muscled him out of what he was brought into WCW to do. So it was kind of just like, give me something different to do. Kick me out of the group, because you don't need me. You've got Bischoff. This was Dibiose's own words that he did in the shooting view. And so he paired him up with Steiners. So they kind of just kicked rocks for a little while, until six weeks later we would have the split. At Super Bowl, yeah. So that's what we're leading to, and I think that's the end of DBRC and WCW as well. Yeah, can't remember yeah, him making was... an appearance after that pay per view. I could be wrong. So it was somewhat underwhelming, wasn't it? His uh, WCW run, but um, yeah, Scott Steiner has a black goatee beard, looks more muscular, and is slowly transforming into Big Popper Pump. The signs are there; it's pretty obvious, and and the match yes. itself would show that as well. Yeah, um, Bagwell keeps turning his back on Scott to pose, and each time he gets clobbered from behind. Uh, Rick Steiner hits what I will call from harking back to uh, for, to, to WrestleMania 92 that we covered in episode four. I think the Takayuki Izuka Memorial upside down backbreaker bump into the corner on Conan. Scott wins with a top rope Frankenstein on Conan as Rick climbs to the top rope, um, awaiting the top rope bulldog. So Rick looks puzzled because they haven't gone for their typical double team move. Scott's won it all on his own. And, and as, as you say, Liam, there's, there's some dissension teased between the two. Yeah. Not only that, but another little sign at the hill turn and tying into the, a storyline that, as I said, should have been quite good, quite logical, but kind of just lost all steam a few weeks later was, and I think they only picked the commentators picked up on this later in the broadcast. Um, Scott Steiner actually roughs up the referee at one point, showing a heel tendency yes. for members of Bayface team, and they and they say, "Oh yeah, we didn't actually catch it," which is a fine thing for them to admit from time to time to us. Little thing, oh, we missed a little thing. Steiner uh, got in the face of the referee, and now you know, obviously we're clamping down. So he got a fine in addition to Lex Luger. So I like that, and it was good. That that in itself was also good storytelling. I suppose it's showing that the the rules are being enforced for everyone, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, and it's also yeah. showing that he, you know, this guy's really starting to let his his real self show. Yeah, and that yeah. he'll turn his coming. Indeed, and and of course he's got a goatee beard, which is the uh, top typical, of the pile, top of the list. Typical wrestling sign of evil. Yeah, mirror universe goatee. Yes. Um, so next, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the entire Eric Bischoff, Larry Zabisco match from Starcade 97 is replayed. So I was wondering why they're doing this. You know, is this the best way to introduce a TV show, a new TV show with tons of recaps and other matches? But apparently it was the highest rated segment of the show. So what do I know? I like a lot of things on this show. It worked in the short run, but in the long run, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, it just to, to me it just tells people other shows are more important than Thunder. But then you know, I suppose that you, if people haven't watched that pay per view, then you get a, a taster of it a couple of weeks later. But yeah, I mean one example I suppose is uh, you had ECW on TNN, uh, and one of the things that caused uh, a disagreement between ECW and TNN right from the start was that Paul Heyman, ECW, their side of things, they wanted to 
run introductory first few episodes where you got some highlights of big memorable matches from pay-per-views you got interviews to you know get making sure people knew the characters what they'd done who they are and so they could really get into the product like, like week after week for the long run whereas TNN were upset by this and wanted just a shit ton of new content and big matches from show for loads of first run stuff original content you know yeah so it's a philosophical difference. I can see I can see the pros and cons of both sides. But in this you know, those though with Thunder showing the, the pros of, you know, we've just had one of our big milestone events. We're moving into a new era for the company. Here's where you are, here's how to catch up. So I get that and it paid over but I think the problem came because numbers didn't you know, Thunder was an afterthought not long after because it was just too much weekly content. Yeah. But um the numbers for WCW didn't really start free falling until after 1998, when they'd really established with with their viewers that they didn't have have a long term plan after the NWO. A lot of people committed to WCW for a little while because of the quality of the content. So they still had them for a little bit, and it was showing. Yeah, it was like you said that the big the big storyline, the NWO storyline, has to come to an end at some point. And then what do you do from there? And and no one want no one with the the egos involved. No one really wanted to be the full guy on, on that. Yeah, we covered we covered it in depth on episode one. Why Starcade '97 was a you know it, it didn't work like it should have. But you know on Thunder here they're showing the Cliff's notes of it. They're showing the the basic highlights, the recap. They're they're doing the the catch up of it, and they're showing just the the bare skeleton of it, which is you know Sting beat Hogan, you know, forget all those little details, Sting beat Hogan, Zabisco beat Bischoff, Bret Hart's here, the main event, alleged main event of the next pay-per-view is Hart versus Flair, to see who's the best, the NWO are having infighting problems, it looks like we're moving on to a new era on paper, and these recaps are doing a, a, a admittedly good job of, of showing you how we got here. But as I said, the the problem with these comes in retrospect because we know right now that they didn't stick to their guns and 1998 ended up with shows like Halloween Havoc. So with hindsight, we know. Yeah. But at the time, I, I, you know, I didn't watch this Thunder live, but if I was watching it as a as a 33-year-old reviewer in the media industry with a really, really rigid tedious take on things like I do now uh, yeah I would say yeah they did everything right to an extent for the for the first show nice okay well talking of the uh, recaps after the Eric Bischoff Larry Zbysko match Larry Zbysko himself comes out for an interview with Mike Tanay. Um he's being pushed as the man who saved Nitro for WCW and they're telling us that uh, Zbysko is scheduled to face Scott Hall at the uh, sold out pay-per-view and Zabisco cuts this amazing promo, basically telling him how great he is and how he's wrestled everywhere in the world. And to me, it sounds more like a heel promo than a babyface one, although I know you, you quite liked it. Oh, it's a gloriously old school promo. The 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 words he uses, it's just, just you have, check it out, is one thing I'd say. Uh, what I like most about it, though, and I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, is that he puts so you, you know you get a lot of feuds in wrestling that are based on 
uh, old lion versus younger lion and it's so easy to run the risk of having the young lion repeatedly refer to his opponent as being old and past it I think you or one of our guests told that Chris Jericho story from his book about him getting a, a dressing down uh, from someone about well, talking too much about how his opponent was too old and it works in reverse as well you don't want a veteran to talk about someone being like a young punk or a scrub or a jobber you know because you you want to put them over as the next big thing yeah. and Zabisco does a great job here for me of talking about he talks about how he was wrestling in front of sultans and kings and that while Scott Hall was still in high school which is technically true everyone goes through high school but it puts over the fact that he you know he's so much more experienced and he saw Hall coming up through the AWA he really puts over that he's got all this that Hall doesn't but it doesn't mean Scott Hall is is nothing obviously Scott Hall's part of the NWO he's one of the biggest names in wrestling at this point but he's doing a great job of talking about how he is going to beat Scott and he needs to sell this is a realistic match because at this point he's a he's a commentator and the match with Eric Bischoff at Starcade is okay that's a you know a match between two non-wrestlers it's a yeah. gimmick match fair enough we know he can go in the ring but at this point it's hard to sell him as you, you, you know he earned a match with Scott Hall by beating Bischoff at Starcade normally it's the other way around normally in in, in these sort of storylines, the the protagonist goes through the hard as nails top henchman, head of security or whatever, to get to the scrawny boss man pulling the strings. And we've got the reverse. So how how does Zabisco sell that he actually has a snowball's chance against Scott Bloody Hall? And I thought he did a great job of, of, of putting in without going, yeah, Scott Hall's a young punk. He talks about he, you know, he's made the wrong decisions. He's taken the easy way out. Zabisco's wrestled around the world. He's done this. He's done that. He's he's forgotten more than he'll learn. It was old school promo at his best. By the way, Zabisco can talk. Like yeah, cut a promo. Yeah. So um, we we then go on to a match involving Scott Hall. It's Scott Hall and Ray Trader. And how how odd is it to see two people wrestling under their real names? Um, yeah. So. Trailer is a, a former NWO member who was kicked out of the group. Um, and, and it's interesting because he's, he's gone through so many different gimmicks. They've, they've basically run out of ideas and he's now just wrestling under his real name, dressed as a biker. And similar to last month when we were talking about Ed Leslie and all the gimmicks he went through, WCW was never able to find a gimmick for Trailer that could come anywhere close to the big boss man gimmick that he had in the WWF in the same way that nothing came close to Brutus the Barber Beefcake. And I mean, they called him the boss. They got in trouble for you know copyright infringement or intellectual property. They they paired him up. They they had a deal with the Guardian Angels. They called him the Guardian Angel in a similar kind of role, which started to get over a bit, and then that died the death. And he he just wasn't able to find that same magic in the in WCW that he had in WWF. And yet, Big Bubba Rogers, the name, the moniker, was right there. And nine months later, he'd be back in WWE. The company was turfed out for being over the hill five years ago, uh, and for a short period of time, until they started doing things like the feud with the Big Show, etc., etc. For a short period of time, as the corporate enforcer, they found that 
that sweet spot with him, I thought. You know, Ooh. dress him up in the in the armed gear, the black armed gear. He's got his nightstick. You know, I'm sure he could have got away with a nightstick or just a right baton those W. Big Bubba Rogers. You know, he was already, he had that reputation of being a Jim Cornette's hard hard man uh bodyguard. You had something there. But it goes to show to to really put a fine point on it, what you were saying. He spent a lot of time around this period, obviously not on this show, but around this period, he was tagging a lot with the Steiner brothers, managed by Ted DiBiase, including at Starcade 97. Uh, yes. And we had just said about how lost in the shuffle the Steiners were at this point, except for, obviously, you know, they needed that split to happen, basically, to bring them back to relevance. And Ted DiBiase was dead in the water and gone soon from the roster. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, it's the same thing you said about not knowing what the what the plan is, not knowing how to finish things, you know. Yeah. And yet in this match, you know, Scott Scott Hall, one thing about him is he was very much part of some of the antics of the clique and Hall and Nash, the NWO, you know, his reputation for himself and just how much of a pain he could be behind the scenes. But you can't say he wouldn't happily stare at the ceiling for people. Um, and this is another example that he... You know, it's a, it's a Zabisco distraction to carry on their feud because they're fighting a sold out, as we touched on with the promo. And it leads to the boss man or trailer slam, and he gets the pinfall. Yeah, Zabisco, as you said, Zabisco distracts Hall, and, and the, and the storyline comes along. Um, there's one point in the match where Hall nailed trailer in the head with a, a bogus world tag team title belt. <laughs> Please remind me, what was that about? Did he? I don't know. Did he grab it from the audience? I guess. No, I don't know. I think he had. I don't know if he had it with him or what. But some. Oh some no, you're right. He did have one with him. Yeah. Um. And yeah, the the Steiners were the champs, but then yeah. the, the the title did hot potato a little bit. I believe Hall and Nash won it after yeah, the show, and then the Steiners won it back. Yeah. And then the when Steiners Stein... were the champions. Yeah. At this show. The Steiners were the champions at this show because DBS had the belts with him. So yeah. I don't know where these bogus... I'm sure they called it a bogus belt on, on the commentary. So uh, I've, I've got to admit to being stumped. I'm not sure the exact story on uh. that. But clear, clearly it had such a profound effect that everyone <laughs> remembered it. Not. Yes. So um, next match up is the World Cruiserweight title. Juventud Guerrero against Ultimo Dragon. Um, and then before the match begins, as you mentioned earlier, Liam, uh, Shivani announces that Scott Stein has been fined $5,000 for striking the referee during the match night. Uh, Shivani admits that in, in true Arsene Wenger style, he didn't see it. Uh, hey. He was too busy banging on about sold out instead of commentating on the action and, in the ring. Yeah, and to be fair, they're also careful to point out that Zabisco came down and didn't do anything particularly violent or disruptive he just did the subtle little distraction so yes. he got away with it I guess which shows Indeed. that he really is playing a game of human chess as he keeps saying <laughs> Indeed. so um, yeah Ultimo Dragon and Hoovy are putting on a great fast paced aerial match which once again the announcers are completely ignoring because they're busy talking about JJ Dillon finding people and how NWO people haven't been fined yet uh, and again, just telling fans not to care about the cruiserweights because their match isn't in, as important as the story of WCW finding people. In in fairness, though, Dean, the uh, I don't think the crowd needed telling that because they really weren't into this match, and it was Which, quite it was a short match as well. To be it fair, it was a shame because yeah, it was a very short match, but it was a it was a good 
good match for for what it was. Um, Dragon counters a top rope cross body block with a drop kick. Hoovy counters a power bomb with a DDT. He then slams Dragon in position for a match winning 450 splash. Uh, and we've got ourselves a new cruiserweight champion. It was a very short match, which I thought deserved longer and deserved the full attention of the announcers. Yeah, um, I suppose one way to look at it is it's you know the the best match or one of the best matches on the show, and yet by the standards of the participants, it's very low on their resume. You know, it's, it's not it's not the best way they could do. It's not a long match. It's all. It was almost a. It's almost like they just willed them out there to have the match and change the title, and that was it. They may so as well. Yeah. They may as well have just had Shivani announced that Hoovy won the belt in Rio de Janeiro from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because the match didn't offer much more than that, other than some good work rate. But then, as I, as I say, you can you can look up so much better from these two guys, and that's why for me this is forgettable. Even though on a, on a strictly speaking, it's it's a good match this is what baffles me it's like yeah you you have a cruiserweight title match you have a title change to tell people thunder is an important show but then you give them literally two or three minutes because you're filling the show up with with recaps it it baffles me it really does not only that but it's the second change of this particular title since the last pay-per-view Starcade, which was what less than two weeks before this yeah um so mike today then brings out bret hart uh, to announce that Flair v. Hart is official for sold out. Only Shirvani's uh, already spoiled it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the, the live audience wouldn't know, but yeah, other than that, we all know. Um, what I found surprising but refreshing was that Tanae referred to Bret Hart as a five-time WWF world champion. Yes. Because uh, you know for, for sure that, you know, the closest they ever got in WWF was Ric Flair, who was the real world champion. But even then, they wouldn't mention where he'd been the world champion of or, or admit that there was any other promotion in the world but them. I mean, I suppose everyone knows who Bret Hart is and doesn't, uh, you know, maybe to say that they've got this five-time WWF world champion sort of a victory for them in, in getting him over here. But um, I, th- I think you're exactly right because, you know, the Monday Night Wars opened the floodgates for acknowledging the existence of the other company. But usually it's always a derogatory thing, but they've got Bret Hart and it's unprecedented that they'd get such a top star. Obviously, the circumstances were very, very crazy and never going to be repeated, you'd imagine. Uh, so, yeah, they find themselves, yeah, they've kind of got to put over the fact that he's a world champion and that's the only place he was. So it's it's new ground, I suppose, because of what happened in Montreal. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, um Unique circumstances, as you say. Um, they basically rehashed the promo confrontation that they did on, on Nitro, which was already shown earlier in the show. Um, but Flair goes absolutely mental with one of his classic ranting Ric Flair promos uh, about how he was the world champion when Bret Hart was in the front row as a teenager. And Bret Hart says to be the man, he'll just have to beat the man. And it's it's a really good hype job for a match that's a natural draw, especially as, as Bret's achieved so much more since since their last match with Flair in WWF, as you said. So it's one of those matches that doesn't need any build-up, but they give it just a very simple, very basic build-up just to whet the appetite a bit. Yeah, two great promos face-to-face between the two in a week. And again, funny, just saying about why I like that Zabisco promo so much, Flair's from very much the same school of thought. He puts over the fact that he is, in one sense, a league above Bret Hart when it comes to experience and what he knows and, and what he brings to the table. 
without taking anything away from Hart. And you know, it's twice in one show. And we always say that we will praise those though when they do things right. And they had guys on board still at this point who who knew how to to establish that and it and it shows. Yeah, definitely. Match ten is next. Scott Norton and Lex Luger. Hmm. Um, Norton's a funny one. He was over so much more in Japan as a foreign powerhouse than, than he ever was in the USA. Yeah, he was incredible at one point in Japan. He was a top guy, like a top uh, yeah. Gaijin. And, and because, you know, foreigner, big, powerful guy, diff, you know, the, the very much the complete opposite of the the, the native baby faces as such. But um, Norton starts out dominating Luger, hitting all kinds of big power moves on Luger. Um, Luger kicks out of his shoulder breaker, which there's this strange dichotomy because Shivani is, is raving about how nobody's ever kicked out of Scott Norton's shoulder breaker before Lex Luger. But when Norton hits that move, no one in the crowd thinks that Norton's got a prayer of winning this one. No. Between the fact that it's a lame finisher, the fact that it's a foregone conclusion match, when you've got a star against someone who because it's not Japan he's not a star at all he's coming out to the job yep. theme so people know who's going to win it so even if he hits their finisher they know it's not going to end it you know a variety of those things people are trained not to, and I don't think they ever did much of a job of hyping up like that his shoulder break was that great and it's a lame move but as we mentioned there was always that that Paul Heyman talk of Mark Henry could have a side headlock as a finisher because you have that big arm just making it look like he's actually popping someone's head off and no one ever to my knowledge no one ever made a thing about Scott Norton's shoulder breaker breaking shoulders so if they did this and like every time he hit someone they went out and had their arm in a sling the next week on TV they could get there but they never made the effort they know he's going to lose uh, it's a crap finisher anyway, and so because of a combination of all those things, people are just waiting for the rack. And thankfully, and um, you know that's one thing Norton brings to this this squash, is that he's a great lump for the visual of Luger getting him up in the rack, which is exactly what he does in about three minutes, and Luger wins the match. Should have done it in thirty seconds, really, because <laughs> yeah. that's what we just want to see a big dude get the rack. Which yeah. is the one thing Luca brings to the table at this point. <laughs> well, it's not a promo, is it? We've established that. Nah. Um, then Bagwell runs in. He gets racked. Savage runs in. And as Luca releases Bagwell from the rack, he then falls into Savage. And they both go down. Not sure if that was intentional or not, but it looked good. Um, so that ends that segment. Um, and then we go to highlights of Hogan's Sting from Starcade. But before we go to the finish, the announcers all talk about the controversy of Nick Patrick's fast count. And Heenan has a great line. He says, Heenan, uh, Heenan says that Nick Patrick can count to 10 in three seconds. Uh, so, yeah, we get these highlights. And, and, and again, this is this is just your, your classic because WCW moment. After talking about everything that's happened and making this big controversy about a fast three count that never was, they then show the match again, and then everyone can see that Nick Patrick delivers a nor- perfectly normal three count. So, yeah, they, they could just have told people what happened. They could have not shown that. They could have made some legal storyline up. They could have edited it slightly to speed it up. They could have done anything. But no, they, they just choose to re- to air it as it is and show everyone that nothing actually happened. Oh, yeah, you can imagine WWE would have doctored the footage 
and sped it up so it looked like a fast can and people like you and I would have been on social media saying oh yeah how blatant was that but then in this day and age even when there's you know there are internet forums in 98 with the most diehard of wrestling fans would yep. have been would have been chewing out the blatant post-production but this very impressive rating share for this first funder after their biggest ever pay-per-view would have bought it so as dubious as it is and as much as we would call them out for blatant uh, sweetening of the of, of what was clearly a screwy thing thanks to Hogan and Patrick it would have had the desired effect if they had just pulled a a, a shady bit of editing and sometimes yeah. you have to do that especially when you know your your talent goes rogue or is, or, is, is yeah. it rogue when you have it written into your contract you can do the <laughs> fuck you like do what you want yeah. but I think even if you just pause the footage and just said oh you know Nick Patrick's legal representatives have said we're not allowed to show this footage or something just but not just just show the thing not happening again when you've already you already know it hasn't happened. It was, it was baff, baffling again. By this point, the, the mystique that Sting has built up is is being diminished. But thankfully, you, you know, it's not all dead at this point because we have this confrontation that you're about to walk us through, Dean. And I'll say one thing before you go through what happens is the the pop for Sting's arrival and what he does in the ring are great. So the screwiness of those awful Hogan matches haven't killed him. You know, they've no. really diminished the star power compared to how the main event should have gone in Starcade, but you know, it, it's still salvageable going by the yeah. crowd reactions. People like just like seeing him with that belt around his waist. Yeah. So it's but, not Hogan, it's oh, the baby face. So obviously they, they, they put more work into completely ruining what they could have had with Sting as the crow-like baby face. But at this point, the one double dose of screwiness with the Hogan matches hadn't yet ruined his crowd reactions. He he comes out to a good pop for this. Indeed he does. Indeed he does. So um, Next up, the announcers talk about a near riot that happened after Nitro went off the air in Baltimore. And this has been the catalyst, apparently, for the new laying down of the law in WCW. So while this is Nitro footage again, this time it's never before seen footage as it was recorded after Nitro went off the air. Um, it's a rematch of Hogan v Sting. It sounds like TV commentary is coming out over the PA system. Can these guys ever get their fucking audio right? <laughs> um, it then appears that Nitro went off the air before the conclusion of the match. I'm uh, not sure how that happened, but hey, they'd make it even worse at Halloween Havoc 98, uh, episode two. Go check it out. Randy Anderson gets bumped. Nick Patrick appears. Sting confronts him. Hogan attacks Sting, rolls him up for a normal time three count, but he's holding Sting's tights to seemingly regain the WWE world title. Uh, rubbish or garbage, as the Americans would call it, starts being thrown into the ring. Sting attacks Patrick, who doesn't actually appear to have done anything wrong in this instance. Um, Randy Anderson recovers, says the match should continue. He never made the three count, and he's the referee. Sting applies the Scorpion Deathlock. Hogan submits as Sting seemingly has retained the title. Um, and as J.J. Dillon's about to present the belt to Sting, Bischoff comes down, attacks Dillon, Sting attacks Bischoff, the entire NWA runs down to the ring, Bret Hart comes down to make the save, followed by DDP, Ray Trader, Jim Duggan, a load more. 
there's a mass brawl in the ring. I'm I'm still waiting for this riot because I kind of think that a riot is something to the crowd disturbance as opposed to a bunch of wrestlers in a pre-booked scenario. And that's that's where basically that's where we we end the recap. So then, yeah, we go back to the live action. JJ Dillon announces a decision has been made regarding the title. So again, we've got something important and significant happening on the first thunder he calls hogan down to the ring hogan comes out with bischoff and uh, the the nwo cohorts are in the limo with him which is conan vincent scott norton scott hall kevin nash dylan then calls out sting who's got the world title around his waist and as you said liam gets a big pop um dylan announces the title is being held up and declared vacant until they can make a decision. So the decision is that they aren't making a decision yet. This is this is basically more drawn out than Brexit. Um, but the long and the short of it is we don't have a world champion. Yeah, apparently there was some talk that they'd have a tournament to decide the champion that would end where it ended up going, which was Sting Hogan rematch at Super Bowl. And I think someone must have smartly decided that you know, because these two guys are at the forefront of the controversy, you could just announce a rematch without jobbing out most of your upper mid cards unnecessarily. So, yeah, you, I mean, people would have known what the final would have been, so it would have been hard to have got behind the quarters and the semis, and then you're trying to justify these these pinfall defeats for guys or whatever, and then yeah. they'll probably try and book a random, like Randy Savage booked around his... Chris Adams defeat earlier <laughs> um, so yeah it just made sense to get straight to the rematch but yeah as I said the the Sting Hogan thing just they weren't going to have good matches they're always going to have Hogan's type of match which was unwatchable at this point and people just I, I get that they, you know there's there's money in having a rematch sure have them at Super Bowl but you know it's, it doesn't change the fact that we should have seen Sting kick his ass at Starcade give him the rematch and the rematch I don't know would presumably give you the start of the NWO Civil War if you if you're trying to book it to yeah. make people want to keep watching this company by the end of 1998 but uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, know, we know how it went um, so it's time for our main event our last match on it's the US heavyweight title Diamond Dallas Page defending against Kevin Nash um, Nash is in charge to start with, using uh, his his usual offense and you know the the pace of that. Um, Nash is working on the ribs, has DDP down on the mat or cornered, so it's it's all Nash so far with DDP selling. Uh, Hogan makes his way to ringside, so it's good to see that the new zero tolerance WCW is uh, is kicking him. Uh, Nash hits the snake eyes, face drop to the corner, harking back to the old DDP Vinnie Vegas days. So, yeah, this match is literally all Nash. DDP's had zero offense. Um, Hogan then jumps up on the apron, punches DDP in the side, right by the ref, who DQs Nash. Um, Shivani then says, we're running out of time. So, uh, as the giant walks to the ring to confront Nash, I don't know if this... This is just someone saying quickly get a DQ because we have legit run over. If this was actually how the, the finish was booked. The Giant walks to the ring to confront Nash. They start brawling and the broadcast goes off air and it's just a terribly weak finish to the first ever Thunder. Yeah, it's the typical weak finish that they pulled a lot. We touched upon the uh, how the NWO finish had become a bit of a trope where they'd have these 
these schmoz finishes to the show. They had done it a lot. And, and yeah, the show was, was screaming out for a change. It was not just because it's old wrestling work rate. The, the, the show needed a change of pace. And that change of pace just happened to be having like things like heart flare and stuff like that. The Sting Hogan rematch on Nitro. I actually looked it up to see exactly where it went off air. Because obviously you don't see that on this recap on Thunder. But apparently when that Nitro run, it went off air when the referee, the original referee got bumped on the Stinger Splash. Right. So we got none of the finishes, they just went, we're out of time. And, and that's another Shivani uh, cliche, it's one of his memes, isn't it? We're out of time. Yeah. Uh, so he did that far too much, and it's a shame to say, because we needed away from this. But yeah, the, the match was awful. Not just because it was being run by Kevin Nash, who, who can't put out a good match. Hogan causes a disqualification by interrupting Paige's first offensive move of the match. And you've got to love the genius. How, how great is Hulk Hogan? He's psychic genius. That he hopped up on the apron of a match where Paige had got no offense in at all. He hopped up before he had even tried the move because he knew he was about to try his first move of the match and it just <laughs> happened to be his finisher so it's just awful in every way why would you want to watch it why did they have the match it was, there was no positive that you can take from this no because it also just completely devalues and the, the the credibility of your US champion the man they had just minted as US champion would have win over Hennigat Starcade, and again yeah. we'll throw back to episode 1 we were very positive in how that match was a good match at their showpiece show one of the yeah. probably, probably the only truly happy ending to a match given the confusion around the big two matches with uh, yeah. Zabisco and Sting the one true happy ending match was Page getting his first major title after having his breakthrough year and straight away he's getting swamped around by someone who's his friend, someone who's actually gone out of his way to put him over before that, so I don't know who come up with this match, I don't know who thought that the match the way it panned out was a good idea it's a shame because there was so much logic on this show for the most part even logic in the face of poor logic such as the cruiserweight title switch you know the title's in a, a state of flux but yeah have a title change on the first thunder so there's a yeah. bit of logic there good promos good sensible you know unexpected results even if they're getting turned around it's built in built towards the storyline of right we're going to try and clamp down on the guerrilla warfare that nwo embarked upon for 18 months there's there's attempts at logic and then it finishes with the same old, same old. And yeah, it sounds like we're nitpicking. It sounds like we're being geekish about it. And it does sound, I know that. But history shows us that by the end of this calendar year, the masses were sick of it. I think it's, yeah, it's because we know what happens and because we wish it didn't happen. Yeah, but, the benefit I of mean, hindsight for sure. But yeah, it's true. I mean, it's fact. I, I would, yeah, I, I'd say overall, you know, this first episode of Thunder had some good points, some good matches, but to me, there are far too many recaps of other shows. Uh, a weak main event. I'd have preferred to see like one or two less matches and other matches given more time. But yeah, if I if I saw this episode, would I would I be inclined to to tune in for episode two of Thunder? I don't know if I if I watch Nitro religiously. I don't know if it, you know would I bother because I'm getting lots of Nitro recaps. Yeah, I feel at the, at the time there was still a fair bit of interest in the product, so I can imagine uh, 
yeah, I'll have to double check what the ratings were for like weeks two, three, four. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Obviously, it didn't take long over over the course of time. It didn't take long for Thunder to just drop into its clear role as a as a B show. But I'm sure a few guys gave it a few weeks thinking that right, WCW is shit hot at the moment. They've just had their peak with Starcade for better or worse content wise. So timing what yeah you can see why um Turner demanded this second show timing wise it was it yeah it they were they were super hot but some sometimes you've got to favor quality over quantity and WCW even when they stumbled upon superb things like how hot the NWO got they didn't have a great grasp of quality and the executives at Turner pretty much submerged them in this demand for quantity and it really hurt them you know, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not sure if they would have seen through some of their storylines if they were kept to just two hours a week of Nitro only but this this surely didn't help there's no, no. way this helped I mean the thing is you look at modern day WWE and even with two separate rosters five hours of live programming six hours of live programming a week is way too much and no you know I can't keep up with it and mm. I'm sure a lot of other people don't so a uh, quick theme Dino a quick theme yeah it's your turn isn't it it's my turn and it's also you know we're talking about the day today being the uh, day of the death of WCW and being just before Easter it's also from what I've seen online in the in the current wrestling news it's the day that Big Van Vader, former WCW champion, will be going under the knife, open heart surgery. He's uh, yes. he's been pretty open about his health issues as of late, and you know I, I, I don't know intricate details about it, but we can only hope that the big man does all right and wish him the best. So it did bring to mind one of the better WCW themes from back in the olden days. Uh, he had two themes. I think one was a time from his Japan, and then they gave him this theme. This was the theme most people remember um, him having. Uh, his, his in-house WCW theme, and it's a great one. Here it goes. Absolutely love this. I've, I've got to say, yeah, when when I was uh, when I was a teenager, this was what ninety three. So yeah, yeah, I was sort of sixteen, seventeen years old. Vader was the headliner at the top 
guy in WCW, the world champ, a heel. You know, I was, I was the, I always liked the heels at this time, obviously. And and yeah, I this just encapsulated everything about a Vader match. It's big, intimidating. Um, yeah, you, I, I remember getting people saying to me, oh, who's your favorite wrestler? And I'd say, oh, Big Van Vader. And you, you'd say the name and they'd snigger. And then you'd show them Big Van Vader wrestling. And all of a sudden, it'd be, shit, I wouldn't want to mess with him, you know. Yeah. Um, I do remember this, this, this music playing at Wembley Arena for a WCW house show. And it was one of those moments where I legit marked out for the music hitting and the whole atmosphere that was created around him and stuff. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant. Good good pick. Good good call, most definitely. Yeah, there's such a deliberate pace to it. The tempo's perfect for a monster hill. Uh, it's a very intimidating theme, and yet it's not generic. You know, you think of a generic big bad guy fan, there is that sort of thing. Case in point, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll very quickly do a little sample of the theme he had before this, because he had two in WCW. And uh, this one, you know, this is not a bad entrance theme at all. But you, you, you know, you pick any any hill above six foot tall, three hundred pounds, and they could have this. Whereas Vader, the the, the recognisable Vader one, just it, you know, even though it doesn't it doesn't have his name. You think of Vader time, another great theme in WWE. That was clearly his because it's got his name in, etc., etc. Um, this doesn't have an actual personalised tie to him, but within a couple of months, it was as it was adopted as such. It it was like sewn into his into his persona. This was the theme you you associate with him, almost like Stone Cold Steve Austin's theme. You know, yeah. doesn't come out saying, "Oh yeah, Stone Cold, Stone Cold, he's really Stone Cold," or anything like that. But after a few months, that was his music. That was his that was his rhythm. Uh, and and this was very much the same for me for him. Definitely, and and then you add Harley Race into the mix. Yeah, you know, he didn't necessarily need Harley, uh, a manager and need need Harley Race there, but at the same time, my God, it added so much to the to the whole the whole atmosphere. Sort of like Paul Heyman and CM Punk. So certain double X are good. It's not like they need them, but it's such a good double X. And yeah, part you know part of me would have loved to have seen more of. Babyface, bad, you know, badass babyface fader in 1995. He turned face just before he left. He had a, he was gonna, I think he was gonna start a feud with Ric Flair. Kind of turned into Flair versus Anderson, bit of infighting because Vader picked a fight with Paul Orndorff, got put on his ass and fired. 
Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't have minded seeing, you know, after all those years as being the Monster Hill, he was he he was part of the furniture in WCW, and I do like a protagonist who, you know, we were saying about the Ric Flair's, Eddie Guerrero's, someone who is not a good guy slapping hands, but you position him against more evil people, and, you know, very much a Batman vibe. People can dig that. Yeah. I'd just like to say once again, thank you ever so much for downloading us. We are also part of the IWN International Wrestling Network family. Uh, they're on IWNlive.net. Uh, follow them on Twitter at IWN Live now. However, I can also tell you that if you're listening to this, and as a congratulatory measure for making it to the end, the cost of monthly subscription to the IWN is normally £4.99 a month, around about $6.50 in the US. We have got a, a an exclusive discount code at the moment, uh, which expires in a few months' time, 13th of June. It gives you 20% off that 4.99, so basically knocks a pound off. And if you just put in the the discount code, all one word, all block capitals, 20 because WCW. That's two zero because WCW. Uh, put that in, you'll get a discount on your first month, and it tells it tells them that you've uh, you've come via this this podcast. So please, if you're on iTunes, review and rate us. That really does help as well. And if you are listening uh, in the very first few days of this being lo- uploaded onto the site, have a fantastic Easter break as well. My God, I don't know about you Liam but I certainly need it thank you very much for downloading please tell a friend on behalf of Liam Hat, this is me the Twisted Genius Dean Ayers saying thanks for listening and I'll see you ringside